begin by talking about a popular video game. There's a video game called Animal Crossing. How many of you are familiar with that game? All right, I got a few people here. So if you're not familiar with the game, it is a game which is called a, a life simulator video game. It's a life simulator video game, which you are a character in the game. You create your own character, and your character lives in this little island. And when you get to the island, there's this little raccoon. Anybody know his name? Tom Nook. Tom Nook. This is Tom Nook. And, and there's other little characters, this little monkey name. Porter. Porter. Guess what Sam likes to do? And this little, this is Isabel. And she's like the host of the game. And what I love about Isabel, look, look at her hair. It looks like the mitten. This is a dog that put her hair in like a little mitten. I think all you, I think all you long haired people should do your hair like that. So that's Isabel. So these are the little friends from Animal Crossing. And Animal Crossing is, there, there's more. Sam gave me all these, so I got to show them. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Sam's a collector. Who's that? Uh, fauna. fauna. And? Resetti. Resetti. Remind me to take these before I leave. Reese. So this is, this, is, this is Animal Crossing. It's kind of this amazing video game that came out by Nintendo in about 2001. And then they went through a lot of revisions and a lot of changes. And in March of 2020, it came out with the latest revision. It was called Animal, New Horizon Animal Crossing. And that game became incredibly wildly popular. It came out a week after lockdown happened. So everybody's at home going, I need something to do. And literally that in the first week, I think they sold like 12 million units. And then in the next week, they sold another four or five million. I think a year later, they sold 30 million plus units of this game, Animal Crossing. Because it's a fun thing for people to do. It's a life simulation game, which you kind of have a little pretend life. And you're some little character that's going to look like that. And it's an interesting game because what you do is you, get, you start the game and you end up on a deserted island. There's basically nothing on it. And the first person that you're going to meet is Tom. Tom Nook, he's kind of like the proprietor of the island, maybe the president, what you would call him. And he's going to be the very first person you meet. And he is going to give you a tent so you have something to live in. But Tom is also going to offer you for 98,000 bells, you can buy a house. Bells is the currency that they use in the Animal Crossing world. So for $98,000, you can buy bells, 98,000 bells, you can buy a house. And then once you're in that house, well, then you're going to want to go to the store and you're going to want to decorate your house and you're going to want to go to the store and buy some clothes, but you're going to have to make money. So you bounce around your new little island that you developed and you're going to catch fish and you're going to sell them or maybe you're going to catch some crabs or whatever you're going to catch and then you're going to sell them in the store and that's going to change into some bells for you. So either you can spend it at the store or you can pay off your house. So quickly, this game turns into a strategy of paying off your mortgage and decorating your house. And then through this whole process, you create kind of the job that you really like. You pick your friends on the island that you like. And as you continue in this game, your little island turns into this perfect little utopia that you create. You create your own paradise. And that's why people like to watch it, because it's kind of relaxing. There's no evil that happens. You have friends. You don't like your friend? Just kind of get rid of them. 
And so it's this nice little game that millions of people across the world have been doing since COVID came. And it's very enjoyable. And kind of the purpose really happens to kind of pay off that mortgage and have a good job. And then you know what happens when you pay off your mortgage? Tom comes back and he offers you a house for 198,000 bells. So you can upgrade. And you upgrade your house and you add additions and you go to the store and you update your bathroom. And it's this kind of fun little game that you continue to go on and travel on as you just create your perfect little life. You create your perfect little island, your perfect little utopia. And I think for a lot of us, our prayer life, looks a lot like Animal Crossing. Where we use our prayers to create our perfect little utopia. We want the perfect job. We want the perfect house. We want the perfect furnishings. We want the perfect friends. We want the perfect relationships. And our prayers kind of consist of just praying for these perfect little things to create this perfect little island that we can live on. And when a God answers our prayers the way we like it, we get excited. And we get happy and we think, well, thank God you're answering my prayers. My job's going well. My relationship's going well. My friends are going well. Life is great. But suddenly, something doesn't go so well on your island. And it's easy to get pretty upset. It's easy to get frustrated with God and think, wait a minute, I've been praying about this job and it's not working out. Or this relationship I have over here, I prayed so much and it's not going the way I wanted it to go. And it's easy to get to that place of discouragement where you just lift up your hands and like, what's going on? You get discouraged and you get frustrated and you want to give up because your perfect little island isn't being created. And right now, with this whole COVID thing coming back, and right now, all the tension in the world, it's easy to get discouraged because this little island of utopia that we're praying for isn't really happening the way we want it. Some of us are frustrated. We're thinking, my prayers haven't been answered the way I wanted them to be prayed. And it gets discouraging. There's times when we have unanswered prayers that we cry out to God and say, why? What is going on? And sometimes God will answer you. That's a good prayer. But sometimes we just have to wait. So to talk about why prayers aren't answered, that's another good series that's come down the road. But today I want to talk about what is your posture in prayer? Especially what is your attitude or posture in prayer when things are not going the way you anticipated them to go at all? If you're here last week, you know I, I wrapped up my message talking about Mark 5. Mark 5 is a beautiful story when Jairus comes to Jesus and says, Will you heal my daughter? Will you come to my house and would you pray for my daughter and heal her? And Jesus says, Sure, I'll come with you. And Jairus is walking with Jesus to his house. And on the way there, he gets word that his daughter died. Wait a minute. That's not how this works. I said, Jesus, would you come with me? You said yes, and you are literally, he's literally walking with Jesus to his house. Jairus is probably thinking, my daughter's going to be healed. She'll be well. Jesus, you're walking with me right now. And halfway there, you get news that his daughter died. That's not the way things are supposed to go. That's awfully discouraging. You're walking with Jesus, and he's 
doesn't do what you wanted him to do. And so the friends say to Jairus, they say, you know, your daughter's died, died. And they say to Jairus, stop bothering the teacher. Just stop following that guy right now. You didn't get what you wanted. And what, is, what does Jesus say to Jairus? Jesus turns to Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just have faith. Don't be afraid, just have faith. I think that's a word for each of us right now. I think that's the word for the body of Christ. Don't be afraid. Have faith. You know that little sentence? That's pretty much all that God wants from us. To not be afraid and to have faith. In John 14, 1, Jesus says to his disciples, this is the chapter after that, you know, they realize that Jesus is going to die on the cross. He says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus says to his disciples, believe in me, trust in me. There's 21 chapters of the book of John, and 85 times John says, trust in me. Trust in Jesus or believe in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying to us. That's what Jesus says to Jairus. Trust me right now. Keep walking with me, but trust me right now. Asking why prayers aren't answered, that's a good thing to do. It's an important thing to do. But I want to talk again today about what is your posture in prayer? How do we approach prayer? See, for the past several weeks, we've been talking about spiritual formation. We've been talking about the things that Jesus does in our life to make us more like Christ. We've been talking about the things that we do in response to what God has done in our life so we become just like Jesus. So as we become like Jesus, we start to do the things that Jesus did. And so we talked about surrendering our life. Then we talked about silence and solitude, of spending that quiet time with Jesus. And then we talked about dealing with your past, because we all know our past is going to influence in a good way or a bad way, and we're just saying, let's not let it influence in a bad way. And then the last couple of weeks, we talked about community. But today, I want to talk about prayer. But before I talk about prayer, I want to talk about a big obstacle to prayer, See, if we were in a big church, in a big room with thousands of people, I could probably say, okay, let's all break up into groups of 10 and let's talk about prayer. And my guess is from my 54 years of living here that if you got in groups of 10, 9 out of 10 people would say, you know what, I probably should pray more. I don't pray enough. And they'll probably have some good excuses like I get busy or I forget about it or the time I wake up late and I know I need to spend more time in prayer, but I just kind of forget to. And that is true. That does happen to us. But I think if we're really, really, really honest, a lot of us would say, the reason I don't pray as much as I should is because sometimes we wonder, does it really work? Sometimes we wonder, does it even make a difference? Because sometimes we prayed for something and, well, it just didn't happen. And that happens a lot of times. 
it's easy to kind of give up. Or you start praying out of obligation but with no real faith or no real expectancy and it just turns into a routine and it's not that much fun. But there's honestly good reasons to get discouraged in prayer at times. John 14, verse 13, Jesus says, You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. The next verse, Jesus says, Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. The next chapter in John 15, 7, he says, But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. Go to verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. And then in John 16, verse 23 to 24, it says, At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth. You will ask the Father directly, and He will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. Six times in three chapters, Jesus says, Ask for anything in my name, and I'll give it to you. That's a pretty good deal. But we know from experience, asking for anything in Jesus' name doesn't always happen. I mean, we do know on one hand, asking in Jesus' name, tagging on in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, it's not some magical incantation. It's not like, open sesame. You know, it's nothing you can do to guarantee. But to pray in Jesus' name means to pray according to his heart, to pray according to his will, to pray according to his nature. We understand that. Otherwise, you could pray for anything in my name. None of us would ever have to do dishes anymore. And I literally would have a brand new car every single morning. But we know it doesn't work that way. So we know we pray according to Jesus' nature and according to his will. And that's our desire to know really what is the will of the Father to pray accordingly. And it gets discouraging because sometimes you pray for things. And you think that has to be the will of God. And it doesn't happen. You pray about COVID and you think by now we'd have a cure or a remedy or something. And a year and a half later, it sounds like we're at the starting gates all over again. It's discouraging because you think, isn't that God's will? Isn't that He's His purpose? It's easy to get discouraged. And it's easy to get frustrated. I think that's why at this time it is so strategic that we remember the words of Jesus of don't be afraid, just have faith. See, I think God is reminding all of us that when we became followers of Jesus, he did not say, follow me and I will make you really comfortable. He didn't say, follow me and I will set you up on your perfect little island with all your new friends. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I love the amplified version because it says, follow me as my disciples, accepting me as your master and teacher and walking the same path of life that I walked. And I will make you fishers of men. See, Jesus said from the very beginning when he called us to follow him, he said, I want you to leverage every single thing in your life to grow the kingdom of God. Not to grow your own little kingdom of utopia, 
said, I want you to leverage everything in your life, your skills, your talents, your ability, your finances. I want you to leverage it to grow the kingdom of God. And that's what we are called to do. We jump all in with all of our faith and we pray and pray and pray. And how it turns out, that's up to God. But we just posture ourselves and we jump right in. So how do you posture yourself when we live in a season where it seems like we have a lot of unanswered prayers? I want to draw your attention to five very important words in the Bible and the Old Testament. In Daniel 3, verse 18, it says, But even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. See, these are three or five very powerful words. A lot of you know the story in the Old Testament of the prophet Daniel. Daniel had three really good friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these four guys were good friends, and one day, King Nebuchadnezzar, they got exiled into Babylon, and they're living in Babylon, and the evil king wants Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down and to worship the golden statue that he created. And these three young men said, no, we will not do this. These men are literally minutes away from death. If they don't bow down and worship that golden idol, they will be thrown into this furnace and they will die. They are minutes away from dying and how do they respond? They probably could have easily said, all right, we'll go over and worship that thing and we'll ask God to forgive us later. They could have done that, but they didn't. They could have tried to talk their way out of it, but they didn't. In Daniel, 6, verse 3, 6, Daniel 3, verse 16, it says, records what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They said, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. Why did they say even if? On one, they start out by saying we are confident that God will rescue us. And then they say, but even if he doesn't, are they showing a little lack of faith? Are they being a little double-minded? Why are they saying we are so confident, but even if? See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying, we are so strong in our faith and in our confidence in God that even if he does not do what we want him to do, we will keep serving God because we know he is faithful and that we know he is good. See, these three young men were saying that their relationship with God is not determined by the outcome of their prayers. That their relationship with God is not determined by the outcome of their prayers. But the relationship with God is determined because He is good. And He is faithful. And He is perfect. And He is holy. That these men could focus on the character of God and say, it really doesn't matter the outcome of this story. See, Daniel and his free, three friends, they were living in Jerusalem. They were living in captivity in Babylon. Why? Because of the sins of their ancestors. 
they were having to suffer because of other people's sins. So these four young men got taken into Babylon and cast captivity with thousands of their other friends. But there's something different about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. There was something different about these guys that they caught the attention of the evil king Nebuchadnezzar. And he wanted these guys to work for him and he wanted to take them away from working for God. Sometimes the enemy can see an anointing and he's like, I want that to worship me. And the enemy will sometimes go after gifted people. And so what these, so, so Nebuchadnezzar's strategy was, the first thing he wanted to do is he changed these three guys' names. He changed them, they, they actually had Jewish names somewhere in my notes. And he changed it to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He changed their names to try to change their identity. He wanted them to think different of who they were. And then the next strategy that the king had is that he wanted the men to eat the food. that they wanted. He wanted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel to sit at his table. He invited them to sit at the king's table and eat their meal. Now that sounds like a good deal. You sit at the king's table. You're going to get some really good meal. You're going to get some really good wine. That sounds great. It's like going to Ruth's Chris every night. I think I would like to do that. But what did Daniel and his friends say? They said, no, that's not part of the diet for a good Jewish person. We'll just have our vegetables and, and grain and water. They turned down steak and wine to eat veggies and grain because they wanted to be faithful to God no matter what. Nebuchadnezzar was offering them something that looked really good and it would literally taste good. And they said, no, we don't want to go against God's plan for our lives. See, what these four men knew is that they knew that God satisfied them way better than any meal could satisfy them, so they are able to turn it down. That's why they could look at the furnace and say, it doesn't matter what's going to happen because we know God is so faithful. That's why they could look at the furnace and say, even if. See, when they said even if, it, it wasn't a lack of faith. They were not saying we can't trust in God. They weren't saying that God is going to be unfaithful. Instead, it was a mixture of confidence with humility. Their prayers were mixed with confidence in God and humility in their own weaknesses. So if they're so confident in God, why did they say even if? I think Tim Keller sums it up best. He says, their confidence was actually in God not in their limited understanding of what they thought he could do. Their confidence was in God, not in their limited understanding of what they thought he would do. They never doubted God. They only acknowledged that they weren't totally sure how God would answer the prayer. But they know that God would be faithful because he is. See, sometimes in the church we like to teach you have a problem, you find a scripture. You hold on to that scripture, you hold on to that promise, and you pray that scripture until it happens. Well, guess what? If it doesn't happen, who's to fault? You. See, that's just not biblical. The Bible doesn't tell us you just find one scripture, you hold on to it, and you claim it until it happens. That's not how it works. Praying scripture is important. Holding on to promises is incredibly important. But letting God do the outcome 
That's the most important thing. Weaving that humility in our prayers, saying, God, I'm not sure how this is all going to turn out, but I certainly do trust you that you're going to make it work in the best possible way. See, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, that they would be delivered either from death or they would be delivered through death. And they weren't scared at all. It's important to remember that right now. It's important to remember that as we are in this climate of so much uncertainty. It's so easy to go from confidence to fear in a second. We need to remember Jesus' words. Don't fear. Just trust in me. Well, as you can imagine, King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't too happy with these three men. He wasn't happy that they would not bow down to him. So what did he tell his guys to do? He said, make that furnace even hotter. We're going to make sure these guys die quickly. They heated up that furnace so high that when the men came, the soldiers came to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they died from the heat of the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire, and what happened? They survived. Nebuchadnezzar even looked and he said, look in the furnace. It looks like there's four guys walking around and one looks like God. See here, their prayer wasn't answered. They were thrown into the furnace and Jesus was in there with them. See, sometimes we have to go into the fire to find our deliverance and to find our freedom. Because the text tells us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not one of them was burned not one of them smelled like smoke, but the ropes that tied these guys up, they disappeared in the fire. And the enemy that threw them into the fire, that enemy disappeared too. Sometimes going. Sometimes going in a fire is the best thing for you. It brings you freedom that you never anticipated or expected. Because both with Jairus and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus was with them when their prayer didn't get answered the way they wanted it to. But Jesus was with them. So you might wonder, what do I need to do to get to that place to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? What do I need to do? I think that's the wrong question. I think the better question is, who do you need to lean on in times of uncertainty? Not what do you need to do. But who do you need to lean on? See, the book of John shows us the posture of a disciple of Jesus. In John 13, verse 23, it describes John. It says, lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples who Jesus loved. That's the posture of a disciple. One that's lying back on Jesus' chest. 
Why do you lie back on Jesus' chest? Because that's a position of security. It's a place of safety. We all know what little kids do when they get scared. They jump into a lap of somebody that loves them because that gives them security and confidence and hope, and it gives them peace. We all have that experience with a little baby. You get them to sleep really good, and you walk to put them in their crib, and they wake up. They want the security of somebody holding them. You rest better when somebody's holding you because you know that you're protected. And that's the position of a disciple of Jesus, that we're just resting in Jesus, knowing that he'll take care of us, knowing that he'll protect us, knowing that he will encourage us. Because when you lean into somebody's chest, you can hear their heartbeat. That's what we do when we lean into Jesus. We can hear his heart. We understand his will. We start to understand what he wants to do. Our prayers are filled because we can hear Jesus' heart. And we know how to pray. You know, some people tell you that the same, that the same relationship is built by hearing somebody's heart is looking them directly in the eyes. It's the same kind of reciprocity and communication of hearing someone's heart or looking them in the eyes. And that's the picture that Jesus gives us of a disciple. Just leaning back. See, on John 13, verse 21, Jesus had just finished serving his disciples his Passover meal. He washed the disciples' feet. He told them that he would serve them. And the disciples knew that Jesus is on the way to the cross. And so they're a little anxious. And then in verse 21, it tells us that Jesus was also troubled in spirit. And Jesus said to the group, he said, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Disciples are all kind of shocked. Somebody's going to betray Jesus? And so immediately the disciples started saying to each other, Who do you think it is? Is it going to be me? They're asking Jesus, who is, it, is it going to be me? And so Peter motions over to John and says, motions to him like, John, ask Jesus who it is. And then in verse 25, it tells us again, it says, then John simply leaned back on Jesus' chest and he said to him, Lord, who is it? John leaned back on Jesus' chest and asked him a question. That's our posture in prayer. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of not going what's going on, we just go to Jesus and sit in his lap and lean back. That's our posture right now. We don't lean into the news. We don't lean into social media. We don't lean into our own understanding, but we just lean into Jesus and we rest and we listen to his heart and let our prayers be filled by the heart of Jesus 
in the compassion for Jesus because we sit in his lap. We can say, even if, even if, because we're being held by the one who loves us. Amen.